out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist Sean Stern, who I spoke to to find out more about life, love and poetry, member of the LA punk rock band Youth Brigade, and now organiser or one of the organisers of the Las Vegas Punk Rock Bowling and Music Festival that is going to be taking place at the end of this month, May 2023. If you want to know any, any more information, just do punkrockbowling.com. Punk You'll find out more. Um, and much more in this interview. Anyway, so after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Sean, it's all over to you. Well, I my my dad played guitar um, when he was going to med school. Now, I was just a little kid, but I do remember him playing guitar. And when he decided he no longer wanted to be a doctor, he got a show um, in he started writing for a TV show called the music hop in Canada. And so I have no idea why he got on a show about music, but it was like a weekly variety show. Gordy Lightfoot pretty much got his start, you know, sort of getting famous on that show. And I yeah. remember he would come, my dad would come back and to the house late at night and Gordy came by a few times and they were playing music. So that's where I sort of first saw we my brother and I played piano when we were younger and living in Canada. And then we moved to California. I played um, I played saxophone in the band and Mark played violin in the orchestra when we were in middle school. Right. Um, we were listening to stuff that my dad and my mom were listening to early on. And when we were, you know, 10, 11. So I was influenced early by what I heard on the radio, especially the Motown stuff. Um, and then my parents were listening to uh, Janis Joplin, um, Bill Withers, Jim Croce, sort of Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young, um, things like that. And um, and then I started listening to music on my own as I got a little bit older and into high school. And it was all 70s stuff. Like Jimi Hendrix was the biggest influence on me. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we were all smoking a lot of weed and listening to Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and all the stuff like that. Um, of course, Bowie, of course, Queen a little later. Um, and then what really, you know, I started playing guitar when I was 16 and what, when I, in the summer of 77 is when I first read about the Sex Pistols. Um, and then I heard My Aim is True, Elvis Costello on the radio. And that's when I realized, you know, this, the rock and roll I had, was listening to was all well and good, but the punk rock stuff that really had a huge influence on. Yes, absolutely. And what was but what was your first gig you went to? Did did you go to one of those massive you know rock concerts in the early early seventies before you hit sixty? I, I, I did go. Uh, I was more like about seventy four, seventy five, seventy six. I was going to some of those big stadium things, but the first concert that I went to was robin trower at the shrine auditorium because you know i i started i got turned on to robin trower because i was a big hendrix fan and a lot of the people said oh you know robin trower rory gallagher that's who you should listen to if you love hendrix and yes so get into them 
Was it Bridge of Signs that uh, maybe yeah, one loved? That was the one. And I, I yeah. do remember, I think I got, my little path was also Spirit because I loved Randy California. And then it was that uh, Jimi Hendrix kind of connection with him, yep. dear old Randy. So, um, yes, there you go. So what was the first record you went and bought with your own money? Uh, you know, I think I wanted, I, I was trying, I didn't know the name of the song, but I think it was Chuck Berry's song, but instead i got the song wrong and i ended up buying alice cooper schools out for summer which was like whoa and but i loved it um yes I, yeah i do remember that and then you know it was all that 70s rock was what i was, was what everybody was listening to yes you know? we, we we all loved um pete frampton and comes live and yep Part yeah. and then there was Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. I had a brother who was about seven years older. He was into prog rock as well. So I used to sneak into his room and listen to all his kind of prog albums when he yeah. wasn't around. And I, I was consumed. I thought that was brilliant. And you know, it was only yeah. later that I realized it would be nicer to have heard punk, but punk was not yeah. going to be part of a you know prog rock kind of record yeah. collection. So um the, the two yeah, 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 like yes, and Emerson Lake and Palmer and all that sort of stuff. Yes, it as was well. a bit too much. So as we, we as all, <laughs> oh my god! Actually, I still love Jethro Tull. I love. I do too. Yeah, I, love, <laughs> I, I still love him. It's funny. My girlfriend's from Italy, and we started. We talked about music, and for some reason, she's she's nine years younger than me, and for some reason, there was a boyfriend, and he turned her on to Jethro Tull, and she loves it still. <laughs> yes, this is true. I only played them during the winter, autumn, winter. I know I know the dark, the dark nights are going to get darker because I put Jethro Tull on. I can't play them in the summer, but um, seasonal music, you know, it does happen, yes, doesn't it? Yes, I get it. it. <laughs> so as, as, as the sort of 70s progressed then, when did you decide? Because I've always just been a fanboy. You must have thought, no, we're going to be in a band. What, what, what was the sort of moment that made you sort of think, right, let's get this together and be serious here? You know... I was a surfer and when there's no waves, you're kind of bored. And my grandfather was visiting from Canada and he was a, as my father used to put it, he was an armchair communist. Um, but we were bored and he just said, why don't you guys play some music, pick up some instruments, play some music. He played piano. My dad played guitar. Um, so that music has been in the family, but not, you know, nobody was professional or anything. So I just said, okay. And I started playing guitar and my brother, Mark started playing drums. And, um, and then, you know, a year later is when we got into punk made the first show we went to was the Dickies at the whiskey. Right. Uh, and that pretty much, I saw that and I said, cause we were, we were playing in a garage band with another guy playing bass, doing cover songs of all the stuff that I just talked about playing parties at friends houses. And when I saw the Dickies, I said, that's it. I don't want to, I don't want to do cover songs anymore. We're going to write our own material and be a band. Yes. But we did love banana splits, didn't we? That was always a classic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did, the, did the sort of the, the kind of musicality of your sort of uh, first album come together quite quickly and quite easily? Did, did you sort of lock into quite an, in, you know, interest in Sonic Groove? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was playing with my brothers, so we were already pretty close. We surfed together, we skateboarded together, we we grew up together, we lived in the same house, you know. So, yeah, it just sort of was a natural thing, you know. We didn't really think about these things. A lot of mm -hmm. stuff in, in, in my life, I didn't really think about it too much. It just did it, you know. 
Yes, because for us, you know, we, you know, this is slightly simplistic. We had the punk period, then post-punk, and then, you know, 79, we have, you know, Thatcher gets in, you know, the, the great conservative leader. Um, then there's the Falkland War, then there's the minor strike. The, you know, the UK was pretty, you know, poverty-stricken at this point. So a lot of people were into bands just because there was not much else to do. And there was a lot of sort of anger about sort of the... The, the political, you know, extremes, which, you know, this has come back to haunt us now. But at the time, you know, it all seemed a bit desperate and there was no future, as we used to say. What was it like for you in America and in L.A. at that stage? Did you have the same sense of sort of, you know, the world's going to all go to, um, was just going to go pop, really? Because there was also the Greenham Common. There was these, you know, nuclear missiles in the U.K. Russia was kind of getting a bit trigger happy. It was all it all felt a bit much. Yeah. But I mean, in hindsight, it doesn't seem like anything bad compared to what we got going <laughs> now. But yeah, I mean, we had Reagan. So, I mean, that was our foil, right? Ronald Reagan's president. He's an ultra conservative, even though compared to what's going on now, he was, uh, you know, middle of the road, really. Um, but we, you know, for us, I mean, we didn't have the kind of labor strife and the unemployment and, and that sort of, it, we did in the 70s, but by the time, we got into punk rock things were doing a little bit better but we had reagan um and it, the reason one of the main reasons i got into punk was i was just a little too young to be part of that 60s revolution right i was a little kid um and i always admired what they were doing it inspired me the, the music inspired me and the and the protest and that they were able to i mean stop a war or at least protest a war um, and, you know, civil rights movement, all the great stuff that happened in the 60s. But by the time I was a teenager, that stuff was, those problems didn't go away, but the people that were protesting pretty much were moved on to other stuff. And all that was left in rock and roll to me was sex and drugs. Um, I got nothing against sex or drugs or the rock and roll, but it didn't say anything to me. That's why for me and my generation, punk rock was... You know, this is the music. This is protest music that I want to participate in um, because the rock and roll is just about now making money. And, you know, uh, I didn't care for it. So no. for us, it was just and it, it was different for us because a lot of the UK bands, they may not have started out thinking, oh, I want to sign to a major label and, you know, get big. But that's more or less what happened. Same in New York. But in L.A., it was much more a DIY scene. There was never really... There, some of the early punk bands here dabbled with major labels, but for the, myself and the bands that I worked with and my friends all and all these younger bands, it was always, we're going to do it ourselves. We put on our own shows, we put out our own records, we set up our own tours, you know, that's how yes. it was. Well, I didn't, it was probably last week, I did an interview with Alice Bagg talking about the LA scene and it did seem like there was quite a, you know, brilliant community of people pulling together and creating their own scene did that yeah. was 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 that your experience as well yeah there was the early scene and that's where i met alice and you know she's a she's a little bit older than me um when when i came down i you know i was a teenager still um and then that scene i i kept saying to my brother you know this is gonna blow up when the surfers get because we were surfers and i'm all when all these surfers get into it because just the mentality of surfers goes so well with punk rock you know and it did it blew up and it was all the surfers really that blew it up huntington beach and and uh, long beach and all these bands like adolescence and social distortion and tsol and agent orange and the crowd and so on and so forth 
And that, you know, that went from that first summer that I was going to punk shows in 1978 when 100 Punk's Rule Generation X's song really was the anthem for us because that was about how many there was. I mean, it's a little more than that, but not much. And then by 79, when Public Image came out to LA and played at the Olympic Auditorium and there were 4,000 people there, it was like, wow, the scene blew up. Yes, I would imagine. Was Keith Levine in the band at that stage and Jar Wobble? I think Keith was. I don't know that Jar was. I can't remember, though, to be honest. It was quite a party. I would imagine. It was a great show. (laughs) So as you, because the first album is Sound Sound and Fury, that came together. Was that that relatively, was that your first experience in the studio? No, I'd, I'd gone in the studio with the previous band, this sort of new wave band that I was in for about a year called The Extremes. And we recorded a little... I think four songs, seven inch. Um, and then I, but, but that, but as far as, you know, really recording a whole album's worth of material. Yeah. That was the first thing. And the ver- the version that we did at mystic studio, mistake studios, I like to call it. Um, you know, it was fine. We thought that the recording was bad when we heard it, we went out on the road and we heard it, we got it from the pressing plant. It turns out we found out later, we realized later that it was the, it was the mastering that was bad, but right. When we re-recorded it, it was almost a brand new record. I mean, we barely kept any of the songs from the first version. Yes. You know, no that version was it. everybody knows, you know, was recorded with Tom Wilson, and that was a much better experience. Yes, absolutely. And did you record did you tour then that album and come to the UK and Europe after then? Yeah, we did. Um that was in eighty four. That was our tour to Europe. Um that was quite an an adventure. Were you were you sort of doing that as a package, or were you sort of um, headlining it or supporting? Yeah, we were headlining. Um, it was still very DIY. I just I, I DOA had been out in Europe, and they gave me a bunch of contacts, and I reached out. Um, and I, you know, John Loader from Southern was was running the BYO catalog for us at that point for Europe. Um, so between him and these contacts I made with the the, the I got from Joey Shithead from DOA. That's I was just basically faxing people and and using stolen credit cards to make phone calls off pay phones to set up the tour. Um, <laughs> you know, the 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 manager of Peter and Test Two Babies helped us out um, in London and um, and get us some more contacts. But yeah, I, I pretty much dealt with the booking of almost a, the whole tour. Yes, and what was the response like and reaction from the crowd? Uh, for the most part, it was great. Um, we didn't end up playing too much in England. Um, we did really well in Germany. Uh, we did well in Spain. We went and did well in Italy. And then we went to the former Yugoslavia. Um, and we played a show in Ljubljana, which was amazing. It was about a thousand people there. And, you know, the, the songs sync with California hadn't been out that long. And these kids were all singing along with it. It was kind of crazy. Then we went to Poland after that for, I believe it was six shows. And we had a, a van that we rented from from the UK that had, you know, the uh, right-hand drive driving through Europe. And yes. it was like one of the Who's roadie vans and it had a big Union Jack painted on the side. So that was a target. Our our tires got flattened by, apparently by the police the first night in Poland. And then um, we burned the clutch out the second night when we were, in uh i think 
where was it? Krakow. So right. we got we got stuck in Poland for two weeks. We took the train to the rest of the gigs. We were there at the time that Solidarity was rising up, and one of their big supporters uh, was a priest called named Papiuszko. He was kidnapped while we were there, and his body turned up in the river a few days later. We were still there, so it was a, a quite a crazy time. I would that. imagine that was quite frightening, actually. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we didn't quite realize everything that was going on. Apparently, the secret police were following us around the entire time we were there. <laughs> yes. And when you went to Germany, did you go and play Berlin as well? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, what... I think we did. We got so we missed some shows. No, 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 we didn't play Berlin because or did we? Oh, yeah, we did play Berlin because we didn't know at the time. But we met Dave Pollack, who's now a big promoter there. Um, and there's a photo of us at the club looking over the wall and pointing and Dave's with us. And we didn't even know who he was at the time. <laughs> right. My God. Yeah, that must we be... did, yeah, we did play there. We played, we, we missed a show in Bielefeld because we were stuck in Poland and the Germans didn't believe us. They thought we ditched them to go to, to go to England, which was not true. We yes. played a, a squad in we played squats in Italy. We played a squat in Holland, in, in Amsterdam. It was the height of the squat wars in Amsterdam. I don't know if you're familiar with the squats. Yes. So, so what, yeah. did you meet members of the X? There was a band called the X who was sort of... Yeah, I know the band. I don't remember if we did. We may have, to be honest. There was a lot of drinking going on at the time, too, you know, so... Yes, I would imagine it's all a bit of a blur. So you had a few years before your, your next release. What was the sort of... Did that just, uh, was that process quite hard work, kind of getting back into the writing and recording a new album? Yeah, it's just things were falling apart because I was that, you know, I had been in UCLA and my brother Adam was going, decided he was going to leave the band and go um, to art school because that's what he really wanted to do. Um, so things were sort of up in the air. We, we did that thing that many of the Southern California punk bands did, which was... Um, People said go commercial, so we 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 dropped the youth and we were just the brigade for a minute. We put a record out that that I thought was pretty good, but didn't get the reaction that we'd hoped. And no. then the band fell apart for a few years, um, and then reformed in the nineties. Yes, did you when when sort of you know the Seattle scene started to bubble along in eighty nine when Bleach came out, and then we had Nevermind. Did you sort of think? We should be there. We we what are we doing? We're not recording anything. We're not touring. Well, we were we weren't a band, and what happened was um, we took a couple of years off, and my brother Mark um, got my brother Adam, and they started a swing band called Royal Crown Review with our younger brother Jamie, who picked up my saxophone that I played in high school and taught himself how to play, um, and that became a whole little scene that they created that kind of blew up um and then we started i was on i had another band for a minute called that's it and i was on tour in europe and they were on tour in europe and we met up in germany in some town and people kept calling you know saying you guys should do youth brigade play some youth brigade songs jens this guy jens who was in a band called the smarties that we'd put out he was he came down to some of the shows and was bugging us to do it so we decided to do it um and i mean you know the scene kind of had died in LA because of the metal bands, the hair bands, you know, yes. first, uh, I mean, 
it, it really sort of eclipsed with Guns N' Roses, but there was Poison and all those other bands before that. Um, and so punk rock just kind of withered away for a minute. But mm. it never really went away. Bad Religion got back together in the late 80s. And then Fugazi was coming through, you know. And like you said, then there was the grunge scene. You know, you had Nirvana and, and a bunch of bands coming out of Seattle, Soundgarden. Yes. Like but then so, we had people like Sonic Youth and the Buttholes and Big Black as well. Did those bands resonate with you at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the stuff. I mean, it's all part of, to me, it's all punk rock, just varying degrees of whatever you want to categorize it. But it's to me, it's all punk rock. Yes. And how were you? And then when you came to do your third album, um, the was it Happy Hour? What was um, this was kind of almost the earlyish to mid nineties. What was yeah. what was the atmosphere like with the band at that stage? You know, this... we were we were back. I mean, we we got back together. It was ninety two. We did an EP that I thought was very close to what we were doing with Sound and Fury, and we just sort of carried that through with the next couple of records and. We were having a good time. We were touring Europe, touring the States, touring Canada. Um, it was fun. We weren't making a living off of it, but we were doing okay. You know, it wasn't like the, the another state of mind tour where we came back with where we had to jump in the back of a video truck to get home. Because <laughs> the bus broke down. Yes, absolutely. What's it like being in a band with two brothers? I mean, the three of you together recording. Is that were you quite a harmonious family? uh yeah we got along pretty well you know we we'd, we'd argue and bicker but um it's it's a little easier i mean i hear some horror stories about bands fighting amongst each other we we never got you know we never were punching each other um or trying to kill each other so that was yes good. i mean because when you went to sell the truth this is this is a great album isn't it what's were you in a particularly you know, did it, did the stars line up for you at this stage? Because listening to it now is just awesome. You know, it does sound so brilliant and the lyrics are good and the sonic kind of quality of it. Did it feel like quite a magic time for the band? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, and there were definitely songs on that record that, you know, really resonate still to this day. I mean, there it's funny, the guy who's playing second guitar with us, Johnny, who was in a band called Old Man Markley, that's the record he knew, you know, he was a teenager when that came out. So that was the one that he always wants to play all the songs off of that. And I'm all okay. But look, for example, this year, we, we just did some shows this past weekend for the first time really since COVID. Um, and uh, it's the 40 year anniversary of sound and fury of the, of the second version of sound and fury. And I said, you know, we got to play a lot of the songs off of that record. And he's all, I get it, but you know, stuff on sell the truth is the best stuff you ever did. <laughs> okay. Yes. And lyrically, I love the song "We're In." That was. Yeah. Can you remember writing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I remember bits and pieces of writing all those songs, but yeah, that you know that was that was the sort of my commentary on how punk rock had just started to blow up and bands were you know making money and stuff. Yes, because because for me, eighty three to eighty seven in the. Uh, important period indie pop i loved indie pop in the 80s the smiths were my favorite band and you know i sort of felt like there was a real moment when they split up i don't know if you've ever experienced that where you just think the party's over it feels like the chapter's closing even though at the time you're not quite sure but later on you realize but you you cover one of their tracks don't you what she said yeah, yeah. so were you were you a sort of person who liked the smiths or was that just one particular track you, you no know? no I, I love the smiths i think and i love morrissey i think he he writes amazing songs you know 
I like lots of different music. Uh, you know, the only thing I'm not a big fan of is is country. I mean, I like the old stuff, but the new country, the new newer sort of hip hop and most heavy metal, I'm not a huge fan of. I appreciate it. As a musician, I appreciate all music, but I'm not going to listen to that when I'm sitting in my house. I, I you know, I love Durity Column. I, I love um, Portishead. I love uh, Massive Attack, uh, you know. And so for me, the Smiths that sort of predated all that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, I love the cure, you know, all, all that. I, I like that sort of sort of melancholy music, you know. Yes, we all we all embraced it. From a young age, I used to love the work of Joni Mitchell and and actually before that was the Carpenters, which I thought were the ultimate in sort of sad lyrics, which I still yep. think that if you like the Carpenters, you are definitely going to like Joy Division and the Smiths later on because yep. it's all about alienation and loneliness and you know heartache. So it all it all makes sense. So yes, I'm there. But we in this country, you know, we had three weekly music papers like the NME yeah. Sounds Melody Maker, which was amazing because they all had big circulations in the 80s and 90s. And also John Peel was this DJ that had yep. a show about three, four nights a week playing two hours of really interesting and obscure music. So that's where I loved, you know, the indie pop, the napalm death. You would have Bulgarian folk music, you'd have African music from the Bundu Boys, early hip hop with you know, Public Enemy, all those sort of bands just thrown into one bizarre show, which, you know, there would always be one thing that you think, oh, that's a great song. But I wouldn't imagine liking Chicago house music, but I've just heard this great song. He always had that ability to pick a great great song from a, a type of music, a different genre. So, um, yes. Did you have anybody like that, you know, the equivalent in, in you know, America? No, not not as brilliant as John Peel. I mean, we have Rodney on the rock, you know, he he definitely championed punk rock, but he also was playing a lot of really mediocre uh, female bands because they were female. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> um, but he did give a lot of punk bands their their first shot and he definitely championed punk rock, which was great. I mean, that, you know, he, he had Rodney's English disco. Um, him and uh um what's his face kim i can't remember his name but oh kim fowley kim fowley they yeah <laughs> the creepy the creepy creepy guys yeah the creepy guys i know it's a bit of a you mentioned you know those three words you know when when i was growing up bands being interviewed were always saying you know on something like the old gray whistle test would you know why did you get into music and they would just go oh it's sex drugs and rock and roll and then i'm sure somebody said just stop saying that because um <laughs> Not sure if that was completely legal at the time. So anyway, there you go. Things things change, don't they, for the better, hopefully. Yep. So yeah. So then, what happens to you with the band and your next musical or your next career from from uh, Brigade? You know, I mean, it it always ends up coming down to do we have time to do all these different things, and one thing's going to suffer. It, it always seemed that the band was what suffered when. Cause we had the label and then we morphed into doing this festival and you know you you, you have to be realistic like you got to pay the bills and some things are yes you know to deal with them the so so, so tell us about the las vegas um punk bowling punk rock bowling because actually to confess i absolutely love vegas we sort of accidentally stumbled upon it you know years decades ago 
kind of visiting sort of national parks, but sort of in that area because I love the desert landscape and flow into Vegas, had a few nights, go and do your thing. And then slowly became more and more obsessed with the city thing. Actually, this is a great place. The hotels are brilliant, but they're cheap. Great entertainment, all these Cirque du Soleil. And then one day I was there and there was all these punks. And I was thinking, this is very strange. And then it was like, blimey, look at this lineup. This is this is my brain couldn't compute it at all, really. So, yeah. So how did you start this? You know, it was a bit like Michael Evis and uh, Glastonbury Festival in the early 70s. But he, you know, his was a cosmic thing with ley lines. What was your moment? Oh, no, ours was just a a, a fun party. uh, This guy that worked at at the label, Andre Duguay, he, he was a fanzine guy from the East coast. And we had been in touch back in the eighties and then he ended up moving out to LA in the nineties and started working for us at the label. I don't even remember what he did. I think he was doing publicity or something. He heard that fat records was doing a bowling league in San Francisco with other labels and bands. And he said, we should do that. And we said, okay, we, we did it nearby here in Santa Monica. He didn't tell us that he's a really good bowler. So that, that went for about, I don't know, six, seven weeks, and we all had a really good time. And when it was done, Mark and I said, you know, we should we should make a party of this in Vegas because we love to gamble and we love to go to Vegas. So we just put on a party in, in January around a three-day weekend, which is President's Day weekend, um, where we just had a bowling tournament. The first year was 27 teams, you know, Fat Records, Us, Epitaph, other labels, other bands fanzines promoters whatever the next year it sold out at 56 teams and then it just kept growing and growing um, we would do a a kickoff show the first night on friday we'd bowl saturday afternoon people would do shows around vegas on saturday on their own then we would bowl the the, the playoffs on sunday and then we'd have a, a an awards party on sunday night usually manic hispanic would play and yes. uh it was a lot of fun. And we did that for about 10 years and it just kept growing. And it got up to the point where we were at four different bowling centers. And we had over 200 teams um, and there was a wait list to be in it. It was just, it was just, but it was just for fun. It was just a party. I mean, we made a little bit of money, but it was just, you know, the, the it was fun thing to do. And then in 2010, a guy came down from one of the other casinos and said, I have this state of the art bowling alley that I just built. You should come see it. And we said, yeah, we don't really care. The bowling is, you know, he's all, but I also have an amphitheater at my hotel that you can use for free to do concerts. And we said that we care about. <laughs> we went there, holds 3,500 people. And now, now we can do shows all weekend long, sold out, thought this is great. When we went to go back the next year, they wanted to double, triple all the prices. We said, screw you. We went downtown Vegas and we've been there ever since. And it just grows every year. You know? Yes. Has that been like a kind of a, a, a dream, like a, a a boy in a sweet shop being able to just go, right, who are we going to put on this year and who are we going to contact? Well, I wouldn't call it that. But yeah, it's a lot of fun to do. It's a lot of work to do. Um, and, uh, you know, but I it, it's... It's been successful since we started it, which is amazing. I, I talked to some of these people who run festivals and they're losing money every year and they're spending ridiculous amounts of money. I don't know why or how they do it, um, but we, we've, we've, we've moved slowly, built it up, and um, it's pretty amazing. We're sold out again this year and uh, you know it's going to be a lot of fun. It's one of the things that makes it you know bearable and, and manageable for you is the fact that you're not having to put up 
you know, a, a sort of festival in a field or on a site or on an airbase, and you're thinking we've got to do all that, but you've you've got the venue, and you just got to sort of sort out all the other bits of admin and create Excel spreadsheets and deal with the, the promoters and booking and laminating posters. <laughs> well, that venue we left because it was a pain in the ass to deal with the people managing it. So we're back to the vacant lot we were at in 2000. 16 and 15 16 i think 17 but that's where life is beautiful which is a much bigger festival than us is about fifty thousand people and we're about ten thousand. um that's where they work too so it's fine you know you bring the stuff you set it up you're you're set up after a couple days so and, and you run with it yes absolutely and one thing i've noticed from doing this show and being you know very focused on the 80s there was kind of it's taken a lot of time but no one was particularly well people were slightly interested but in the last five years the 80s and the punk scene has really grown because in the last three years I'll say this I'm turning around but there was a book that came out on the Boston punk scene the Texas punk scene there was um you know there's all you know Kevin Cummins who did that you know he's done a lot of photographs for Joy Division and the Sex Pistols he brought a book out only two three years ago on the Sex Pistols playing Christmas Day in Huddersfield in 1976 because he said people weren't that interested at the time but now everyone's really got this wave of interest and there's always you know Max's Kansas City and the, the Mud Club and um yeah CBGB so yeah, have, yeah, have, CBGB. have you sort of found that the this this scene that you're you're sort of champ you know you're sort of organizing creating whatever has, has have you found that it's started to get much bigger audience and much more interest uh yeah i mean part of that's the the digital revolution right you've got all these kids who weren't there but they're finding out about it um on the internet right and uh, and they're getting in, interested which is great i'm happy about it i i think one of the good things that came out of covid is a lot of kids i i was expecting this because, you know, for me, again, punk rock is protest music, always will be. I've had people, you know, talk online, ah, keep your politics out of punk rock. And I'm all, you're an idiot if you think that punk rock isn't political. Um, you're not listening to my lyrics for sure. Um, and I, I, I expected with Trump coming into office, you would see a lot more young kids take up the, you know, take up pick up instruments and start playing music it didn't quite happen then but during covid it seems to have happened we have more young bands on the festival new young bands than we've ever had before with with kids or you know at least under the age of 30 members some some with kids and teenagers and stuff so that's great um and i think you know for this to survive we need that infusion of young blood um and i'm i'm very very excited and happy to see what's going to happen next week with all these new bands yes and when you heard you know sometime probably last year that it was going to be a punk rock museum in las vegas did you what was your reaction did you think mm, that's interesting but it won't happen or do you think good idea yeah no always a good idea but <laughs> I, I was just um at first, I thought that's really strange. But then, having spoken to various people, you know, the two, well, two of the people who involved in it, it's like because Vegas has such a big footfall, don't they, of people going through it. So it did make sense once I thought about the marketing and the sort of the the commercial economics of it. It's like, of course, yes, you're going to come in, you're going to do bits and pieces, do the punk museum because you've got this new audience. Whereas if it was in New York or London. Once people have done it, you're probably a bit stuck unless you're, you know, you've got a David Bowie exhibition, which is a bit different. But generally, it's it's a it's a clever idea because 
Vegas is also quite changing itself, isn't it? The demographic of it yes. is becoming younger. There's much more, you know, I remember when I was growing up, if anybody played Vegas, it was almost like playing one of those NAF uh, end of the pier shows in in Britain you think god your career has really died but now everyone wants a residency and everyone wants to be in Vegas on the tour so it has changed a lot so that's you yeah know. it definitely has it's a, a very unique city no 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 other place like it in the world no absolutely and with your with the lineup what's your you know what's the raison d'etre with with sort of putting together this kind of uh lineup what's your kind of thinking you know do you just kind of think you know let's get the main bands or do you do you have some ethos behind it that's what i'm trying to say yeah for me i want to uh, you know it's always going to come down to my personal taste what i like and i as, as we've discussed i have a very wide um varied taste in lots of different kinds of music i for me punk rock is not just you know the sex pistols or the clash or the crusty mohawk stuff it, it it's very wide you know i love parubu you know i don't think that the goth music i i do believe that's still punk rock it may not be exactly like the early punk rock but you know Susie sue susan the banshees was part of the punk scene you know yes. all, all these different bands so i i for me i i know that what i like you know and and also the two-tone stuff i love the specials and madness and selector and bands like that as well so we've had band all, all these sorts of bands um or we're always trying to get them um so i i like a wide variety of stuff not just what you know and and we have people arguing about it that's not punk but i mean we had devo devo is very punk rock to me i saw them in 1979 at the starwood it was amazing mm. they're still yes. amazing you know it's in, yeah, it's interesting. And did you? I mean, I don't know if you watched it. Did you see Woodstock '99 and sort of think, "Blimey, that looked like hell." Did you also? Do you also think that um, you know you you have a certain responsibility with the lineup that you're putting on? That you think, okay, I'm not going to be. I mean, now it's kind of being called. It used to be called being politically politically correct. Now it's woke as an insult. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a bit like, well, actually. It's not going to be great just to have lots of old men. It's good to sort of balance it up. But do you have that as a sort of a, a thought in in the back of your mind, or even in the front of your mind? Sure, sure, of course. I I want to see more people involved, and not just a bunch of old, you know, men who've been playing in bands since you know for the last 35, 40 years. Um, even though that's helped, th those are our headliners. But I I'm very well aware of the fact that. I can't keep doing this if all I'm going to be doing is having bands of that, that are 30, 40 years old with old white men in them, you know? So, and I want to see the punk scene diversify and grow and, you know, rock. It's still rock and roll at the end of the day. So I'm, I'm always looking and thinking about this sort of stuff. We have more women on the stage this year than ever before, which is great. I would love to see more women playing music. I would love to see, more than just white guys playing punk rock and i think it's it's happening slowly but surely yes i i think through the conversation it is um people are becoming more aware of it and and uh, yes no one would agree, disagree unless you're a bit of an idiot so um yes so when you have a you know just as a curiosity when you have like the op you know, opportunity of like someone like ultra bomb because i was a huge husker do fan and you thought okay you know bob mold probably not but then greg's got a new band with jamie from um 
from from that UK oh UK subs and then there was yeah. uh, Finley Finley who won from the Mahones. Do you just sort of take a bit of a punt with bands, some bands that are sort of just quite new and think, well, they've got a good CV, I'll put them on. Yeah, if, if I like the music, that's number one. Number one, I gotta like the music. Not saying that every band that ever plays punk rock bowling, I'm a huge fan, but um I I I wanna I wanna like the music. And if it's somebody who I know. You know, from either, either I personally know them or I know that the, the bands they played in before and I was a fan, sure, that's going to enter into my thought, right? And, and they say, hey, we're going to be on tour. Makes sense. I, I We have 120 bands, so always good to have something new and something different that, for people to see, uh, you know. And, and at the end of the day, this is a community about trying to support bands and new bands, old bands, whatever it is, we want to do that. So Yes. And apart, and apart from the lockdown, which is obviously just a huge thing, what's the other kind of stumbling block or the other frustrating thing you have being an organizer of this festival? Um, you know, it's like herding cats at times, right? I have luckily I have a good team so that I don't have to be involved in every single aspect of it. But, you know, um, it, it can be frustrating just dealing. Vegas is a weird, again, it's a weird city. Some of the business practices some of the people I have there is a little strange, stranger than I'm what, what I'm used to dealing with in LA or, or just having traveled throughout Europe and the US and Canada and going to Japan and the, the business sense in most places seems to be pretty reasonable, rational, and logical. It's not always the case in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what do you, and then, and do you have a long-term vision or do you think let's just get this out of the way and then just see how we feel when we wake up, when it's all over? Yeah, I think more of the latter. I mean, I, I, I try to think about the future, but you know, I, I'm, I'm really concentrating on the, the next festival, you know, because that's, that's, the, that's all I can do. I mean, I, I can't, ha I, there's no way for me. I'm not, I'm not thinking I'm going to grow this and expand it. That's not my plan. My plan is I, I, we built something really good here. It does really well. People, people love it. They come back. They're very, very loyal and dedicated to what we do to the point where we sold 30% of the tickets this year without even announcing a ban, which to me tells you that people love this festival. They don't, it's not just about the music. It's about the, the community that they get to come and meet their friends and hang out and, you know, see your old friends, make new friends. That's the beauty of it. Yes. Cause I've I just reminded me when you mentioned that 30%, do you, cause I remember sort of used to have the costs all there and knew how many tickets I had to sell and knew that point where you just think, okay, this is okay. Do you have many kind of sleepless, have you had many sleepless nights on that kind of front of thinking, God, is this the one that's going to sort of not work or has it always been okay? I mean, I wouldn't say I've had sleepless night. There was, there's always a concern there, but we're pretty confident that what we put together um, based on the experiences we've had. And as I, as I said earlier, we've grown this slowly because that's how we've always done the DIY thing. I never jump into something and get in over my head. So, you know, when you mentioned that Woodstock movie, and I, you know, watching that movie was painful because I could see all the mistakes that they were making. And, and it, for me, it's all, who is the idiot who's approving this and not listening to these people on the ground who are saying, this made no sense to me. And I told them and they didn't want to listen to me. I mean, there's only one reason for that. Well, two, 
ineptness and greed. And I saw both of that from the people that were running that. that yes. Well, I think with Michael Evers in Glastonbury, he did start it with a, just a few hundred people, you know, for a couple of years, and then they just kept growing it. So he built it, whereas um, even though Michael Lang had been part of Woodstock 69, he 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 realized actually he was lucky in 69. <laughs> I mean, that was that was something that you just it just happened. You were just you facilitated it, but you didn't control it. And to think that you could ever do that again is kind of crazy. So to me, what he was doing was he was cashing in on the legacy of that, which all well and good, but come on. I mean, you, you should have learned how to, to run a festival properly. And taking the precautions to make sure people are safe and you're not putting them in jeopardy the way they did. I mean, that was crazy. You're not, this isn't 1969 on a farm or field with a bunch of hippies. You know? No, listening to Bridgie Havens. <laughs> yep. Jesus. I know, actually, I was getting, not palpitations, but I was like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, I was yep. exhausted by the end of that film. I was thinking, geez, yeah. I felt like I'd been the fire, there. The fire festival, luckily nobody was in danger there because there was no <laughs> there was no show but i mean that was another that was just grift that was just straight up grift and you know scam yes you never worked. you never you never had to pay the water boy the water the mortar chap you know through some strange sexual practice anyway that was always a bit of a classic was, was it simon king moment wasn't it when you know he was asked to do a favor by yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on your own personal front have you still got any musical projects that you're doing yourself Nah, just i'm doing youth brigade we're going to play at the festival because i said as i mentioned before it's the 40-year anniversary of sound and fury um but i just haven't had time uh, you would have thought during COVID i would have picked up the guitar and written a bunch of songs but i didn't <laughs> it was hard it was hard to i mean will you eventually with your sort of career and life, write your book and sort of document the the you know the festival as well. I don't know. We we put out a twenty year anniversary of, for Punk Rock Bowling book. That's it's more pictures than it, than it was text. But and we did a twenty year anniversary or was it twenty five year anniversary for BYO Records that kind of told the story of the label and the band. But yeah, I mean maybe I will. Who knows? Yes. Um, I don't think that far in the future. No, absolutely. Well, it's it's it does look good. And and do you? I mean, I'm sure you do. Are, when you look at your, I don't know, spreadsheet of where people have come from, is it literally people from all over the world have come to your, you know, the festival? Yeah, I mean, sixty percent is coming from Southern California because Southern California still has the largest punk rock scene in the world has since the early '80s, um, and a lot of the West Coast because it's in closer proximity people don't have to travel but we've had people come from japan and china and russia and you know i see the tickets i see it, it kind of amazes me over the years all over south america so from all over the world so that's always a wonderful thing to see yes absolutely and just kind of on the practical because a few bands bottom wanted to play america especially recently but getting visas and costs is that has that been something that's become a bit of a arsake for you guys yeah, I mean, we don't arrange that, you know, we we if if a band wants to doesn't have that sorted themselves through their agent or their label or their management or whatever, we have people that we can refer them to. Um, and then, you know, they pay a fee for the permits, they pay a fee for the per person to facilitate it, they got to jump through the hoops and fill out the applications. 
it's it's not super difficult it does require some work um you know we're we're not a we're not a big enough festival to be able to afford to offer that sort of concierge service no <laughs> None of the bands that most of the bands that we work with don't expect that. So no, but I just I just know quite a few British bands are, would love to go to Europe or go to America, and it's like just meeting the costs at the moment is um, yeah. dealing with those those aspects. But anyway, there you go. But look, I, it, it looks like an amazing festival. All the best for it, and um, yes, I'm sure the sun will shine because it's Las Vegas. So um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. thanks for your time, and um, yes, yeah. I've just been loving listening to the records again. So. Um, yeah, all the best. And I'm really all right. Ultra Bomb will be, you know, just amazing. They'll be good. Yep. Okay, yeah. look. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a lovely day. Uh, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with Sean Stern, talking about his life in music with Youth Brigade and also the Las Vegas, it is the punk rock bowling um, festival that is going to be taking place at the end of May 2023 and probably every year beyond. Anyway, if you want to know any more information, I'll give you the website in the link below. Anyway, uh, yeah, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And uh, all these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>